morning. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. Chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Sorry, my bad. The Lord said to Moses, When anyone is unfaithful to the Lord by sinning unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, they are to bring to the Lord as a penalty a ram from the flock, one without defect, and of the proper value in silver, according to the sanctuary shekel. It is a guilt offering. They must make restitution for what they have failed to do in regard to the holy things. Pay an additional penalty of a fifth of its value and give it all to the priest. The priest will make an atonement for them with the ram as a guilt offering, and they will be forgiven. The Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is an unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them, or left in their care, or about something stolen, or if they cheat their neighbor, or if they find lost property and lied about it, or if they swear falsely about any such sin that people may commit, when they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt, they must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to them or the lost property they found or whatever it was they swore falsely about. They must make restitution in full add a fifth of the value to it, and give it all to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. And as a penalty, they must bring to the priest, that is to the Lord, their guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make an atonement for them before the Lord, and they will be forgiven for any of the things they did that made them guilty. The word of the Lord. Thanks. So how do you handle relationship ruptures? Uh, a rupture is when when you have a relationship and one of the parties in the relationship, so it could be between two individuals or it could be a, within a group um, or between groups, but when you have one party in a relationship that commits an offense, they do something that's it's a violation of the relationship, and that violation like pierces the relationship and now there's this wound. It's kind of in there. Um, what do you do? I think some of us probably err on the side of vengeance, right? You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. And I'm going to hurt you twice as bad to make sure you never hurt me again. Or maybe you're a little bit more passive aggressive about it where I'm not going to say it out loud, but by my icy silence and my snarky remarks, I'm going to punish you until you have paid for your sins. Right? Now, some of us maybe do the opposite. And I think 
lots of Christians may be guilty of this, where we say, you know what, I'm just going to forget about it. Like, no, let's just not talk about it. We're just forgive and forget. You know, Jesus taught us to forgive, so we're just going to pretend it never happened. But that's in some ways even more dangerous because the wound is still there. The rupture has occurred and you're silently letting it bleed out. Is it possible that when a relationship ruptures, is it possible to repair it? For the relationship to be healed? If you're new or visiting with us this morning, let me catch you up to speed. We are in the book of Leviticus, and we've been working our way through the book of Leviticus this fall. And over these past few weeks, we've been looking at the offerings or the sacrifices that God allows his people to bring to him. And we've arrived at the fifth and the final offering, which is the guilt offering. The, in Hebrew, the word is asham. You guys want to say that with me? Asham. And the guilt offering is all about this question. How do you repair a ruptured relationship? And the answer that our passage points us to kind of circles around this idea of restitution. Or what we might call reparations. Now, I realize that is kind of a hot button word in our culture right now. Typically, when Americans and modern Americans talk about reparations, we're referring specifically to the current political social question of, does the United States government and or certain wealthy white families and companies owe financial reparations to the ancestors of those that were victimized by the transatlantic slave trade? Similar question around the indigenous tribes of America, right? The Native Americans. Now, I'm not going to specifically be addressing that issue this morning. However, let's not make the mistake of assuming then that it doesn't relate, okay? Because it really does. And my prayer for us this morning is that as we listen to God's word and as we let it do its work in our hearts, and our minds that it would reshape us and it would cause us to question our own social political ideologies, whatever they may be, okay? But let's back up again and let's address the question of the text. How do you repair a ruptured relationship? If you're a note taker, you're gonna wanna write that down, okay? How do you repair a ruptured relationship? Now. The first thing that has to happen when repairing a relationship that has been wounded is actually something we talked about last week. Eric covered this when we talked about the sin offering, okay? But it shows up again in our passage today in chapter 6, verse 4, where it says the guilty party realizes their guilt, okay? The guilty party realizes their guilt. Now, this is a really important distinction to make. Okay, because in God's word, as Eric talked about last week, there is a distinction between what we're talking about here and what, remember last week when Eric talked about high-handed sin, right? High-handed sin. High-handed sin is when someone commits an offense and they don't acknowledge it, they don't own it, or if they acknowledge it, it's like, yeah, I did it and I don't even care, 
It's, it's no sense of regret or remorse. And that's treated very, very differently in God's word. And it, it, this is addressed back in the book of Exodus. And the penalty for high-handed sin is way worse. It's far, far more severe. Okay, And actually, our own judicial system is the same way. right? If you commit a crime, but you feel remorse about it, and you turn yourself in, and you plead guilty very often the sentence is going to be far reduced from what the maximum could be, right? Versus if you try to weasel your way out of it and you're caught and you plead innocent when it's very clear you're guilty, right? And this is, I think this is really important for especially us Christians in the room to get. Because sometimes as Christians, we get a little bit confused and we think Jesus told us we have to forgive our enemies, that's not quite what he said. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And to love someone is to have a disposition towards them that is ready and eager to forgive. But you cannot actually forgive someone of something that they're not sorry for. I'm going to say that again. You cannot, I'm going to say it again, you cannot actually forgive someone of something that they're not actually sorry for. Okay? So, the place to begin is the, the offender has to realize their guilt. But it's more than realization. Okay? We're kind of at a disadvantage as English speakers because the word realize in English, it's all cognitive. Like you're, you realize the whole process is up here. It's in your brain. Okay. But the Hebrew language is way more action oriented. Okay. In Hebrew, the idea is that it's a realization that actually motivates and spurs action. Okay. And in fact, the verb used here it's the same word that we translate, it's, it's in a slightly different form, but it's the same word that we translate in other passages as repent. Okay? And the word repent, I know it's a church word, isn't it? The word repent simply means to turn. The idea is that, you know, you're, you're headed one way and you change your ways. All right? It's a reorientation of your life. And the idea is kind of like this, is that the person, the offender, is kind of turned one way, and they're really only thinking about themselves and their own needs, which is probably why they committed the offense in the first place. Right? And suddenly there's this realization, and they turn back to the one that they harmed. And there's this, oh, I hurt you. Oh, I'm sorry. I need to make it right. Okay, that's repentance. Okay? How do you repair a ruptured relationship? You begin with the offender has to realize their guilt. They have to recognize that they've done something wrong and they turn towards the one that they've harmed and they repent. Now, what does repentance actually look like? What, is that, what does that process look like? Well, Look again with me in your passage. In chapter 5, verses 16, all right, they must make restitution for what they have failed to do. Skip down a little bit. Pay an additional penalty of a fifth of its value. 
That same thing gets repeated down in chapter 6, right? In uh, verse 5, whatever that was what it's falsely about, they must make restitution in full. Again, with the fifth, 20%. Why the 20%? What's the deal with this interest added? Well, the answer is actually simple economics. It's compensation for opportunity loss. What's that boy talking about? Let me, give you an ex- let me give you an illustration. Imagine you took $100 from your friend. All right? And a couple weeks go by, and then you have a, a prick of the conscience. And you go, you realize your guilt, and you go, that was wrong. I need to make it right. And so you come to your friend and you say, I'm sorry, I took $100 from you. That was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. Here's the $100 back. And your friend says, well, thank you for apologizing, and thank you for giving it back, but you see, uh, I was going to use that money to buy my children Halloween costumes, and now that we're so close to Halloween, all the prices have gone up. hundred bucks isn't enough anymore. Do you guys get the point? Right? It's not only did you take the resource itself, you took away the access to that resource for the entire length of time it took you to repent, right? That's opportunity loss. So think about what this would mean for the offender to restore fully with the fifth vow. What would that mean? It would mean they have to count it all out. They'd have to weigh the cost of their offense. It would force them to do a full assessment of the damage done. Okay? And that's painful. But it's so necessary. Because if that does not happen, what you end up with is a politician's apology. You guys ever hear a politician apologize on TV? Uh, Mistakes were made. And I deeply regret any involvement I may or may not have had in the alleged activity that may or may not have offended certain parties that were offended by alleged activities. (laughs) That's not really an apology, is it? No, that's a PR campaign. That is somebody who is still oriented away from the victim because all they're concerned about is protecting their own reputation. They're still only thinking about themselves. Okay? So in order for the repentance to actually happen, the damage has to be weighed out. It has to be looked at. And let's not forget the part where what was taken is restored. Okay? How do you repair a ruptured relationship? First, the offender has to realize their guilt. They have to recognize that they did something wrong. And they have to turn towards the one that they hurt. And they have to repent. Counting the full cost of the offense that was made. And seek to restore what was taken. But that's not it for the repentance. There's one more piece. And that's the sacrifice of the unblemished ram. Now I would be very, very shocked if there was nobody in this room who felt like, why, why, why this whole thing was sacrificed? I mean, like, what's God's problem, right? I mean, the person said they're sorry. They gave back what they took. Can't God just forgive them? Why is God always asking for this bloody, barbaric sacrifice, 
right? Well, that's a good question to ask, right? Why this need for sacrifice? And the answer that really comes as we begin to understand the relationship between God and this, this offender, this hypothetical Israelite offender, right? What's the relationship between the Lord and the Israelite offender? Now, you are probably thinking, uh, Matt, the Lord is God. Duh, what more is there to say? Yes, the Lord is God. He is also the king. Now, this is not a sermon about God's kingship. If it were, I could point to all kinds of passages in, back in Exodus, the kind of covenant that God makes at the mountain, the, the very tent that he has them build, and the psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm that highlights that God is the king. It's a theme that shows up all over scripture. But that's not what we're talking about today. So you're just going to have to take my word for it. And if you want to ask me about it later, you can. Okay? God is the king. And the relationship between the king and his subjects in the ancient world was very, very clear. Okay? The king's responsibility, his obligations to his subjects was to provide his care and protection. It was the king's job to make sure everyone flourished. So that would mean providing disaster relief. That would mean providing justice for criminal activity within the country. It would mean providing military protection from invading forces. Okay? The king would provide his care and protection for all who lived in his land. And in return, as a servant, as a subject of the king, you would swear absolute faithfulness. Complete, total fealty. And that would mean... Everything that you have belongs to the king. Your land, your stuff, your very life. Everything in the king's land is his property. And if he required it of you, your job was to give it. Whatever that would mean. Okay? So, what are the offenses that happen in our passage? Well, there are two. Okay? The first one in chapter 5 is an offense of omission, not doing what you should have done. The second offense is a, an offense of commission, doing what you ought not to have done. Okay, you see that? Not doing what you should do, doing what you shouldn't do. Okay? Now, the first one, it's a little bit, it's, it's kind of hard to pick up in English. It's, what does it say? It says, if anyone is unfaithful, so this offender is being unfaithful to the king, how? Well, by sinning unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things. What is God's holy things? Well, he's the king, so everything is his property, but there was specifically the tent was his house. And everything in connection with the tent was like his, especially his property, his personal, personal property, right? So what seems to be in view here is neglecting to bring tithes and offerings to God, right? God required his people to bring a tenth of their harvest, which was very similar to tributes that ancient kings would require. And that tithe, that 10% of the harvest, went where? It went to feed his priests, right? So to not bring your tithe, to fail to bring your offerings, was stealing food from the priest and his family. Because very often when we fail to do what the king has asked us, somebody else is also getting hurt. 
So you're taking food from the priest's table, but the offense itself is actually against God, right? Because to not bring tribute to the king is to say what? You're not my king. My stuff is mine to do what I want. To steal, however that looks like, from a neighbor, which is the second one, to steal from a neighbor in the king's land, that's to break the king's peace. That's a personal offense against the king. And the truth is, any sign of disrespect towards the king's stuff in the king's land, that's actually a personal offense against the king. And we get this intuitively. Because when somebody disrespects our stuff, we're personally offended, aren't we? I'm going to give you an example. It's a little crass. Please forgive the, all right? But it's going to get the point across, so stick with me. Let's say you wake up one morning, you walk out, and you're on your porch, you're having your cup of coffee, and there in the backyard is your neighbor in their yard, and he's urinating in the grass. What goes through your mind? It's okay, you can laugh. It's, you're like, oh, that's I don't need to see that. Ah, I'm going to be, that's gross. But you give him the benefit of the doubt and you think, all right, maybe his toilet literally just broke and he had to go, whatever. I'm going to go back inside, right? Right? You kind of let it go. Now imagine the same scenario, but you walk outside and that neighbor is in your yard. That's a different story, isn't it? Why? Because it's your property. To disrespect your property is to disrespect you. And your neighbor could say, but nobody got hurt. I'm just watering the grass. What's the big deal? And you go, the big deal is it's my property and you did not have my permission. Now. <laughs> You're good. Um, where was I? No. The Apostle Paul picks up on this idea in the book of 1 Corinthians. When he's talking to the Corinthian church about their sexual behavior. And he says, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Your, your physical body, it's God's property. And if you're a Christian, he lives there. So how then can you unite God's temple to a prostitute? How can you use God's property in a way that he does not allow now, maybe you're here, and you're thinking, and you're not a Christian, and you're thinking, well, this does not apply to me, because God is not my king. But he is. You see, God is not only the king of his people, he's the king of the universe, because he made the universe. God created everything by the word of his power. Not on accident, but he spoke it into existence. Which means he owns it. It's his personal property. It's as if God owns the copyright on the universe. Do you guys know how copyrights work? Right? If you make something and you copyright it, you own that thing. Completely. So if you're, let's say you're a musician. And you write a song. And you have it copyrighted. And somebody comes along, and they take 12 seconds of that song, just 12 seconds. And, they, and it's playing in the background in a movie that they make. It's unrelated. That is a breach of copyright law because 
it's your property. If that person did not ask you for permission to use your property in a way that you approved of, they have violated you. Ask any artist who's had somebody plagiarize their stuff. Copyright infringement is very personal. God owns the copyright on existence. Have you ever thought about that? Your body doesn't belong to you. Your stuff doesn't belong to you. Your car, your clothes, your food, your phone, they're not your property. Your time, your schedule, your job, your hobbies, your interests, your talents, your existence doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And to use God's property in a way that he has not permitted is a personal offense against God himself. Anybody else guilty of copyright infringement in this room? Copyright infringement is like the mode I wake up in where I'm thinking, what am I going to do with my day and the things that I have in my house? But my life doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. So then... Let's get back to our passage. What do you owe the king for using, for violating his property? What do you owe him? Well, you used a life that belonged to him in a way he did not approve. So you owe him a life. Paul said it like this, the wages of sin is death. To, pay, to truly pay God back for using, abusing, or neglecting God's property in a way that he did not approve of, what you owe him in return is a life, your life. But I have good news. I have very good news for us this morning, dear friends. Our king, he's not a tyrant. He's not vindictive. And spiteful. He's gracious and he's merciful and he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness because he lets us bring a substitute life, the unblemished ram. Now, why the ram? You notice in both cases, both omission and commission, it's the ram that's the sacrifice. Why? Two reasons. One, rams were really expensive. Whoo, they were, that is a costly, costly sacrifice. And that's because God values human life. It is precious to him. And a cheap sacrifice won't do. Second reason, because it points to a promise. Do you know the first time a ram was offered to God in sacrifice in the Bible? I know there's some seminary students here. You should know this. Genesis 22, when God comes to his good friend Abraham and says, Abraham, my friend, I want you to offer your son Isaac in sacrifice to me because you love me. 
And Abraham had, and God had been through a lot together, and Abraham trusted God. So he did what God asked. He took his son Isaac to the top of the mountain with the knife and the wood and the flint, and he was poised over his son, knife in hand, ready to make the sacrifice, and out of heaven God called out, Stop! Don't touch that boy. And then Abraham turned, and what does he see there? caught by its horns in a thorn bush, but a ram. God provided an alternative sacrifice so that Isaac could live. But what Abraham did not know, what he could not have known, was that a better sacrifice was coming. Just a few thousand years later, on a mountain right near that mountain, God brought up the perfect unblemished ram of his son. And he demonstrated his love for us in that while we were guilty offenders, sinners, justly deserving death, Jesus Christ died in our place. On the cross, Jesus Christ paid the debt to Almighty God that we could not afford to pay. He rendered to God the life that was owed him And what was the result? It says here in our passage, the very, very end of chapter 5, they will be forgiven. Period. Full stop. The relationship is repaired. You see, friends, when the king says you are forgiven, it means you're forgiven. It doesn't mean, okay, you are provisionally forgiven, but you have to do some penance. You have to live for a few months in dejection and shame, and you're never, things are never really going to go back to the way they were. No, your record is clean. You are forgiven. Full stop. Some of you here, your offenses that you've committed in your life, they ring in your head. You have a very loud conscience, which, praise God, at least your conscience works. But you've started to think that what you've done is so bad, there's no way God could ever forgive you. There's no way he would ever fully and completely accept you again. I I want you, if that's you this morning, hear me in the name of Jesus. God loves you. Get over yourself. When the king says you're forgiven, your record's clean. Now, what does that mean for us in our life now? Well, Jesus told a story that really gets at what this means for us. And it's a story of a king. A king with a servant who owed him a staggeringly high amount of money. Uh, The amount of money that in our modern-day dollars would equal something in the billions. Uh, Just an unimaginable sum of money. And the king has a servant brought to him, and he says, I want you to pay me what you owe me. And the servant falls down on his face, and he pleads with the king. He recognizes his guilt. He falls down on his face and goes, Please, be be patient with me, O king, and I will pay you everything that I owe you. (laughs) Yeah, dude, 60000 a year, you pay that billion dollars back. What does a king do? You're forgiven. Debt's cleared. You're free to go. And that servant goes out 
Woo! And what does he see? He sees another servant, a fellow servant who owed him about 500 bucks, which is a lot. And he goes up to that servant, and what does he say? He starts to choke him, and he says, you pay me what you owe me. And the fellow servant falls down and says, please be patient with me. Recognizes his guilt. Please be patient with me, and I will pay you back everything I owe you. And the, serf, the first servant has the second servant thrown in prison until he can pay the debt. And the king finds out and is furious. That's kind of a ridiculous story, isn't it? Like, who can, in their right mind, if you've been forgiven a billion dollars, would sweat somebody for 500? Exactly. Repairing relationships is an expensive endeavor. But God paid the price that we could never pay. So if you're a Christian and your brother or your sister or someone comes to you and they say, this is what I did and I'm sorry, it would be insanity for us to say, you pay me back what you owe me. We've been, he who has been forgiven much loves much. Have you been hurt? Have you been victimized in various ways in your life? That's, that's real, okay? Our passage does not ask us to pretend like it didn't happen. The, the, the cost has to be counted. But do you have the disposition of the king toward offenders? Are you waiting for them to repent? Are you eager? Do you love your enemies? Do you pray for those who persecute you? Or do you savor the taste of vengeance in your mouth? Are you the kind of person that loves to feel morally superior? good news. The king can forgive that too. How do you repair a ruptured relationship? First, the offender has to recognize their guilt. They have to realize they did something wrong, turn towards the one that they hurt, and they have to repent by counting the full cost of the offense and seeking to restore what was taken. And a perfect sacrifice has been to be brought to God. The one who has been truly personally offended because everything is his personal property. And praise God, that sacrifice has been already paid in the life of Jesus Christ. So that now, we offenders are forgiven. And we can forgive. Let me pray. Father, thank you that your